Hello and welcome back, dear podcast listeners. <laughs> Are you going to say hello? Uh, hello and welcome to part two of Sex Cults and Charismatic Perverts. I'm Chris W. And joining me on the other side of the bed, who I can barely see over my pillow fort, is... Rain de Grey. I'm waving at you over our pillow fort. We're high tech here, so we make pillow forts to bring you the best podcasting experience we possibly can. Our pillow technology is not to be trifled with. You would be a fool to trifle with our pillow technology. Not to put any pressure on you, but I think I hit it out of the park with part one of Sex Cults and Charismatic Perverts. No pressure, though. I'm waiting to hear what kind of sexy dirt you dug up on these crazy religious fools. I feel that I brought some pretty interesting research to the table, and I know that you and I are pretty competitive, and you think that your dick is so massive and that you made the bestest sex cult podcast that there ever was, and I would like to point out that I have great tits. <laughs> yes, your tits are so huge, and I'm sure that your podcast is going to be great. I'm just going to sit over here, listen to what you have, and let my dick shrivel back up into my body cavity. Excellent. That fills me with joy. If you haven't already listened to part one... Which is so awesome and the best and going to be way better than part two. Yeah, obviously, because you're pretty much, according to Rain, getting my big dick in your ear. <laughs> so <laughs> if that's what you want, go listen to part one of Sex Cults and Charismatic Perverts. It's already out. If you're listening to this, it's probably the podcast directly under this podcast. <laughs> they can't hear anything that you're saying because your dick is in their ear. Yeah, sorry. Let me take that out. They've already had my dick in their ear. Now I guess it's time for you to stick your tits in their hair, basically like a motorboat. <laughs> Get ready to motorboat whatever reigns brought to the table for her sex sculpts. However, before we get into motorboating your research, I want to remind everybody that if you have any questions, comments, you want to add anything to the podcast, we try to make this an open communal effort. We love it when people call in and give us feedback. Give us a call. That number is 614-733-4739. Also known as... 614-R-DeGray. That is... R-D-E-G-R-E-Y. Sometimes people get confused and try and spell it degray with an A, which is actually kind of genius. And in retrospect, I wish I had spelled it with an A, but it's a little late now. Yours is so much more European, though. Yeah, but rain with an A, degray with an A. See where, you know, you know how my feelings on alliteration. Yeah, it's too late now. Oh, well. It, was, it wouldn't be an alliteration, though, because one starts with an R, one starts with a D. It's... Weak alliteration, but nevertheless, it's the A and the A and the first name and the last name. That repeating pattern would have brought me joy, but now it's an A and an E. It's fine. It's okay. I'm, I've never focused any time stressing on it. Well, it's a little bit more symmetry in your name. I like symmetry. I'm ready to <laughs> motorboat your research. 
if you're ready. You just can't stop thinking about my tits. Well, tell. now that you've brought them up. I know, they're glorious. I enjoy them on the regular. All right, here we go. Part two. I'm curious to hear what Rain has. See you in a second. Death to pigs. Poultry skeleton. Blood. LSD. When we think of the Manson family, we tend to think more of the murders and the sex gets glossed over and lost in the shuffle. The truth is that the Manson family got its start as a sex cult with a charismatic leader long before they ever veered into the murder business. Charles Manson came from a very rough and turbulent childhood. He found himself in a series of juvenile detention centers while still in his early teens. It was in the third juvenile detention center that he was sent to, the Indiana Boys School, which was an incredibly strict reform school that Manson claims he was first raped. Early and unwilling initiation into sexuality can manifest in a multitude of ways, and it is not uncommon for those who were molested or sexually assaulted to become hypersexual as a result of the assault. Manson was one of those who reacted to his alleged molestation by becoming hypersexual. I have a quick question. Hmm. You said at the Indiana Boys School, that's where he was first raped. Was he raped multiple times? Yes. Okay. Uh, that it, what he alleged was that it was a pattern of behavior of not just the counselors, but the counselors creating a platform where the older, stronger boys could do it. So he claims that he was raped multiple times. And we have to tread carefully and say claimed and alleged, I fully believe that he was raped there. He was always kind of a shorter kid, and he claims that both the older boys there and the counselors took multiple passes at his nether regions. Okay, so it was a systematic rape. Yes. Not just the one and done. Correct. Gotcha. And as a result of that, he later went on to rape himself. As a teenager, he actually got in trouble for raping younger boys. But it was a case of the abused becoming the abuser. So once he himself had been raped, then he passed it on and started doing it to others as well. Manson's entire life was a trail of children and partners and wives. And at the peak of his power, a sex cult of young women who worshipped him like a living god. There is no doubt that Charles Manson was extremely good at fucking, as many followers testified in a blissful, digmatized haze. He utilized dick and drugs as a very effective technique to build up a support structure of dazzled young women who would do anything he said, up to and including murder. A television interview of Manson had him empathetically stating that the reason he was able to accumulate and keep followers was because of his pronounced sexual skills. 
Hyper-focusing on someone with great intent and dazzling them sexually is a very effective technique for habituating people, and it is a technique that is frequently used by psychopaths. One of the secrets of Manson's ability to wrangle others, in addition to a natural-born charisma, was the fact that he took substantially lower amounts of LSD than his followers. By dosing them at significantly higher levels, he was able to stay in control of the situation and guide them accordingly. Lost people are always looking for answers and for someone to guide them, and a charismatic and convincing con man who can fuck like a champ can easily attract dazzled followers creating their very own sex cult. So he would get them really high on LSD and take advantage of them. And insinuate that he was Jesus Christ and then fuck their brains out. Oh, so this kind of ties into our last episode where they were telling people to masturbate and have sex while thinking about Jesus, but he himself just claimed that he was Jesus having sex with you. He liked to stress Charles Manson and pronounce it as Charles is man's son. He mm-hmm. really, really, really pitched the concept of, I am Jesus, I am the second coming of Jesus, you are my disciples. And obviously, crazed psychopaths or the mentally unbalanced thinking they're Jesus is a pretty common trope. But it was one that uh, Manson definitely wallowed in. That was his whole pitch, is that him and his followers were going to inherit the earth. And of course, it helped that Charles was the reincarnated version of Jesus Christ. So, I have noticed that a lot of mentally unbalanced people think that they're Jesus or Napoleon or some other great personality from history. They've never been like some poop monger from <laughs> like the medieval times. I am the reincarnation of the stable boy. Henry VIII's stable boy. That's never, their delusional fantasies never go that way. They're always Henry VIII. They're never Henry VIII's stable boy. Yes, no. I have noticed that. <laughs> yeah, they're not in Bellevue screaming from the windows. Like, I was the one that scrubbed the floors of the Great Pyramid. <laughs> Many of Manson's followers were female and he utilized them like a tool. Sex can be a very valuable currency indeed, and Manson would often trade sex to acquire the things that he wanted. Female followers willing to fuck the blind 80-year-old owner of Spawn Ranch, George Spawn, in addition to doing chores and helping with the horses, kept the family living at Spawn Ranch rent-free. That is a lot of rent-free bodies being housed. Of course, with this much rampant banging, there was a price to be paid. Most of Manson's female followers were constantly cycling between various states of gonorrhea, clearing up the infection only to acquire it again. In the free love spirit of the time, no condoms were ever used, and there were multiple accounts of men swearing off interacting with Manson's women because they got tired of always picking up gonorrhea. This actually ties back to episode one of the sex cults, where we had the children of God doing flirty fishing, as 
ostensibly a way to recruit people. And but really basically get money from get money. the church through prostitution. <laughs> no, no, no. Flirty fishing, not prostitution. No, no, no. So they're doing it. When you're doing it for Jesus, it's not prostitution. Even though he said that they're the whores of the Lord or Jesus is whores. They were certainly not having sex with any random man they could for money so that they could then donate it to the church. No, no, no. They were attempting to recruit. And the only thing that stopped that as a recruitment tactic was the advent of AIDS. In a surprising twist of fate, it was a beach boy that picked up the doctor's bill for multiple gonorrhea treatments of Manson's followers. Dennis Wilson, of Beach Boy's fame, no doubt thoroughly relaxed in the brain as many people were in the late 1960s, picked up two of the Manson women while they were hitchhiking, and he brought them to his rented estate for a few hours. Reading between the lines, I'm going to guess that there was some banging happening in those few hours. They were doing their own flirty fishing. Right. They, oh, yeah, you're right. They were doing flirty fishing. So hot Manson followers are hanging around hitchhiking, just seeing what's going to fall in their lap. In this case, it was a drug-addled beach boy, which was quite a fishy to fall in their lap. Didn't he tell his female followers to go out and flirt with guys and try and pick people up that they could take advantage of? Specifically people that were involved in the music industry? I haven't seen that as an exact order. That certainly did seem to happen. I think there was just a lot of banging and LSD. It seemed more likely that they did a lot of hitchhiking and no one really had cars and people were just more inclined to pick up hitchhikers. I haven't seen anything in specific that states that he was sending out followers as much as he would say, you know, at parties or occasions or get-togethers, find a dude, fuck him, and bring him into the family. But I don't know if it went so far as that he was sending them out to hitchhike specifically to try and recruit more people. Possibly. The day after Dennis Wilson picked up these two Manson family members and brought them back to his place to hang out for a few hours, the next day he came home from a recording session and he was greeted by Charles Manson in his driveway. Which is, I'm home and, oh, what are you doing in my driveway, you strange little man with the starry eyes? Thankfully, he didn't have the swastika tattooed on his forehead at that point. Hadn't happened yet, but I'm sure that he packed a lot of presence and indeed menace. At the time, one of Manson's favorite bits to do is that he would offer to let someone kill him. Like if someone had trouble with him or some sort of conflict, one of his go-to moves was to say, fine, then you can kill me. And 100% of the time, it didn't matter who he was offering, go ahead and kill me. The person would say no. They would turn down that offer. And then Manson would flip it and say, well, I offered that you could kill me and you didn't go through with it. But that means now I can kill you. It was a psychological tactic that he used, and he knew that the person that he offered to kill him would never take him up on it, and he was always able to flip that as, now I have the right to kill you at any time. I got to try that at some point, just offer somebody like, hey, I'm going to give you a hundred bucks. And if they turn me down, I said, well, now you owe me a hundred bucks. 
<laughs> or anything else. Like, I'd be willing to give you my car. And if they say no, well, then I'm taking yours. That is Charles Manson logic. Evidently, Manson was so off-putting that Dennis asked Manson if he intended to hurt him. And Charles said that he had no intention of doing so and then dropped to the ground and began kissing Dennis's feet. This was a common trope that Manson was using at the time. He liked to do a lot of feet kissing. And he was really dabbling with the Christianity and Jesus mythos. And he loved to dramatically start kissing people's feet or having his feet kissed. The situation diffused. Charles Manson walked Dennis to his house where Dennis found 12 strangers ensconced in his house. Very specifically 12, with Manson being the leader of the 13th. Are you making reference to the apostles? I am indeed, because Manson did a lot of Jesus Christ mythology. And maybe it was a complete coincidence that the day after a beach boy picked up two of his family members, Manson decided to move into the beach boy's house that he brought 12 people. But those were the people that showed up. 12 and Manson, that's 13. Could be a coincidence, but considering how deeply he was into the Jesus stuff, I don't necessarily think it was a coincidence. Most of the strangers that had suddenly appeared in Dennis's house were female, and Dennis did not object. I know that if I came to my house and found 13 strangers living in it, I would most certainly object. But then again, I've done significantly less drugs than a beach boy. Over the months, the amount of people living rent-free with Dennis doubled, and the final bill for their upkeep was a approximately $100,000 in 1960s money, which would be roughly $800,000 in today's money. And a large cost of that bill was for multiple doctor's visits to address the ongoing gonorrhea issues. That is a lot of clap. <laughs> there was a lot of fucking. There was evidently no protection and my thought is, I don't care how addled I am on LSD and how much I'm convinced that Charles Manson is Jesus, how many times do you need to get gonorrhea before you say, I need to make some changes because this isn't working because it's inconvenient to be constantly cycling through gonorrhea, right? Mm -hmm. To be fair, $21,000 of that bill was an uninsured car of Dennis that was crashed by the family because... When you're busy being a rock star, you have no time for petty concerns, such as insuring your vehicle. So they borrowed his uninsured vehicle, crashed it, and then, golly gee, Wilkers, sucks. Sorry about that. No doubt on the way to the VD clinic. <laughs> yeah, probably. The family would not move out. Even after Dennis left when the lease expired, they kept squatting there, and eventually... The owner of the house had to legally evict the family. Once they no longer had a Beach Boys house to squat out in, the family started looking for alternative living situations. And after a number of places, they ended up at Spawn Ranch. 
It was the relocation to Spawn Ranch that really shifted the family dynamic from a sex cult to murder. The ranch was incredibly remote and isolated and had a surreal quality of a movie set, which it in fact was. The days blended into each other and there was no set schedule. With such an energy of play-acting and extreme isolation, paranoia began to develop. The family acted at being pirates and various imaginary characters, distancing themselves further and further from reality, aided and abetted by massive LSD consumption. Eventually, the energy shifted from sex to aggression against the outside world, with inevitably lethal consequences. If only he could have stayed away from murder, Manson could have surrounded himself with a flock of willing women who worshipped him as a god for his entire life. It wouldn't have been a bad life, even factoring in all of the endless cycles of gonorrhea. Stick with the sex, avoid the murder. Is that the moral of the story? That's the moral of this particular story. <laughs> Don't get so distracted by the murder that you give up the sex? No, no, no. Don't do any murder. Stay just with the banging. You can be pirates and have lots of sex with each other, but don't murder anyone. That's the moral of this particular story. Noted. Previously on Dirty Talk After, After hours. hours. Yeah, you ready for this final volley? I'm ready. All right, let's, let's do, do it. All right, hunker down. Oh shit, it looks like they're regrouping. Ah! What are they doing over there? Oh crap! Ah! Incoming! After Hours, available exclusively on Patreon every Monday morning. If you do want to get access to the Dirty Talk After Hours podcast, you can get it in one of two ways. You can follow Rain DeGray on Patreon at 
patreon.com backslash Gray. You have to type it out exactly. I'm not searchable because I'm naughty. She has been blacklisted. She's in the adult ghetto. I'm a bad, bad girl. Or you can head on over to our brand spanking new shiny Dirty Talk podcast Patreon, which is patreon.com backslash Dirty Talk podcast. Either way, if you pledge at $5 a month, you will get exclusive weekly access to the Dirty Talk After Hours podcast. Okay, so your first story was about the notorious Manson and an incredibly high gonorrhea bill. That is correct. Manson would be considered a fairly notorious charismatic pervert. I'm curious to hear what else you have. My second story has William Burroughs, J.D. Salinger, and Norman Mailer in it. Are they all charismatic perverts? Oh, yeah, I guess so. But they are not the charismatic pervert this second story is about. When it comes to charismatic perverts, it is hard to beat Wilhelm Reich. Born on March 24th, 1897, he was a psychoanalyst who was incredibly fixated on sex. Yes, even more so than the average psychoanalyst, and I know that's saying something. He came up with a number of theories, including the concept of muscular armor, which stated that a person's personality was tied into the way their body and muscles moved. So depending on how you held your body and what tensions you did was tied into what your personality was. His treatment for the muscular armor situation involved having patients disrobe and giving them rubdowns to shift their armor. So you're a little tightly strung or you have a bad attitude or aggression issues, I'll give you a rubdown and I'll shift your armor and it will change your personality. Was there a happy ending with the rubdown? <laughs> Maybe. He believed that neurosis was rooted in sexual and social economic conditions. In particular, a lack of what he called orgastic potency. He promoted adolescent sexuality and contraceptives, abortion and divorce, at a time when such topics were still extremely taboo. It is safe to say that he was definitely a sexual trendsetter, but where he really stood out was in his theory of orgone. Have you heard of orgone? Organ? No, that's a state. It's right above us. Orgone was a mixture of the words orgasm and organism and was supposedly a potent biological energy. The concept of sexual energy being able to be created and harnessed is not a new one, and we touched on it in part one of this sex cult podcast. The sexual energy that if you build up enough of it you will be immortal <laughs> right charge those sexual batteries and you can live forever and the way to pull this off is by having a lot of sex i mean i get it it's a pretty appealing pitch sexual energy certainly can seem very potent why couldn't you harness it in such a way such as i don't know immortality 
In Reich's case, he decided that this energy could be harnessed by hanging out in orgone accumulators, which were essentially elaborate boxes that people could spend time in and marinate while soaking up all of the accumulated orgone. So this orgone was just free-floating energy in the air? Right. So you didn't necessarily build it up through the process of having sex. You could just capture it out of the air like a breatharian would live upon it. Well, there were multiple ways to access this energy. It was drifting all over the place, but then you could also charge it up yourself. But these boxes were a way to focus and channel this energy. It's a good line when you use some time. Why are you in the what are you doing in the bathroom there for so long? I'm just charging my battery. <laughs> Damn, Mom. Why do you always gotta bug me when I'm charging up my batteries? Building up some organ energy in here. These orgone boxes were credited with a multitude of abilities, including improving one's health, improving sexual potency, and even shifting the weather. People focused on the sexual benefits over the improved health and weather-shifting abilities, and the orgone accumulators actually acquired the nickname Sex Box. A sex Box? Mm -hmm. I think of something else when I think of Sex Box. Of course you do, because you're a pervert. The sex boxes picked up many fans along the way, including William Burroughs, J.D. Salinger, and Norman Mailer. Norman well, Mailer is the tie-in, the name drop at the very beginning. Uh, uh, see? It all comes around. That would be an interesting name for a band, though, Sex Box. Quick, trademark that. That's a good idea. <laughs> well, they heard it here. <laughs> Nobody can steal it now. Norman Mailer had multiple sex boxes, and Burroughs was a particularly enthusiastic proponent, and he built his own orgone accumulator, believing that it helped him with his multiple episodes of heroin withdrawal. So whenever he had to kick, he felt that hanging out in his orgone accumulator made the experience less unpleasant. Was there anything in particular about these boxes that helped them gather organ over any, say, plain pine box you could hang inside? There has been some debate that it's better if the materials are pure. So if you have, it's it's basically wood and metal constructed. But when people get really focused on these boxes, it's like, well, you need to have organic wood and what ethically traded metal. Wait, how do you have non-organic wood? Where did the wood come from? Was it something that was sprayed? Did it have pesticides or was it natural and growing out in the forest? There's certainly wood, pressure-treated wood and planks of wood that were chemically raised in tree farms and full of all sorts of weird growth hormones. They're, Organic yes. just means anything that was grown naturally occurring. So are you saying that the fruit trees are grown and naturally occurring because that stuff is not organic. It is sprayed and pesticide with an inch of its life. They're still organic compounds. And if you were to... We disagree when it comes to building these sex boxes. I can see... <laughs> oh, you're being combative because you want you all the buzzwords for your sex box. You shut your face. I want my free trade... Organic, like ethically sourced sex box. Like, okay, first off, the sex box doesn't work. We can all establish that. But <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa! We, we can't knock the sex boxes till we try them. 
the sex boxes don't work. We're going to get I want to get inside some sex box. You know what? You can Google Oregon accumulators online and you can find the instructions and you can make your own sex box. Or I probably can buy one on Etsy. You probably could. I imagine that the shipping costs would be fairly substantial because their box is big enough to hang out in, so that shit's not easy to ship. I'm going to get myself a sex box. I'm going to go and hang out in it. I'm going to come out with a raging heart on and I'm not going to share. Fine. Because uh, you don't believe in the sex box. Right. That'll... Your sex box ain't getting any out of my sex box is what I'm saying. All right. And you'll sure show me I'll be punished as a result. I'll just get frustrated and take it somewhere else to someone who is willing to share. Mm-hmm. Didn't think that one through, did you? <laughs> it's, it's, it's fine. You're free to do what you want. In the end, after the claims of the abilities of the Oregon boxes became more and more elaborate, the FDA stepped in on the grounds that false and misleading claims were being made. And they put down an injunction that basically said to Reich, you're very naughty, stop that. And Reich was unable to comply with the injunction. He truly believed in the power of his sex boxes and not even the FDA could stop him from advocating for it. He ended up- Out of my cold dead hands. <laughs> Government will take my sex box at my cold, dead hands. He actually ended up jailed, and all material relating to Orgon at his institute was destroyed because he could not comply with the FDA injunction. This was a man who really, really believed in his sex boxes. Orgon is a discredited concept today, but boxes can still be found as well as the instructions on how to make your very own. Most likely on Etsy. <laughs> I am certain that there are Oregon boxes on Etsy. If you really need to sit in a giant wooden and metal box to accumulate your potent healing sexual energy, it is always an option. Who knows? You might get something out of it. I personally still prefer the old-fashioned method. Which is... Bumping uglies. Why do you have to genital shame? I wasn't genital shame. Oh, sorry. Bumping, glorious, beautiful, natural organs. There you go. Much better. We're in a PC world, my friend. Tread carefully. Someone will write in and complain. You're going to rub my pistol against your pedals? Yeah, okay. That's it's got, it's got a nice flow to it. You're snorting and you're rolling your eyes at me. Fine. No <laughs> one's rubbing anything anywhere. Happy? Well, fine. I'm just going to go hide inside my sex box and touch myself. <laughs> Have fun. Hey, everyone. This is Rain DeGray. If you want to keep tabs on me and check out all the cool stuff I'm doing, you can head on over to my website, raindegray.com and while you're there sign up for my newsletter so that you and I can stay in touch and if you are on Twitter check me out at either raindegray or the Dirty Talk cast. Dirty Talk podcast has a new Twitter. Just search Twitter for Dirty Talk podcast or add us at Dirty Talk cast. Oot. This last story that I have to share with you all today might seem like a little bit of a detour, but hear me out. My last case study is Dr. John Kellogg. 
It might seem odd to include Dr. Kellogg in a podcast about sex cults and charismatic perverts, but there is no doubt that he was a charismatic pervert. Charismatic anti-pervert? Hear me out. Okay. In his case, he was simply the opposite side of the coin. He was just as fixated on sex. Trust me, fixated. He just believed in avoiding it at all costs. Dr. Kellogg is mostly known for his association with breakfast cereal, but the sexual fixation should not be forgotten in the shuffle. Dr. Kellogg ran the Battle Creek Sanitarium with an extreme focus on healthy living, or, as Dr. Kellogg called it, biological living. Biological living included exercise, lots of vigorous physical activity, eating a grain and vegetable-based diet with no meat, no caffeine, no tobacco, and no alcohol, extensive, thorough enemas, and, most importantly, massive sexual restriction. People were no doubt healthier than they would be otherwise, while also being bored out of their healthy minds. His dietary restrictions were so severe that right on the outskirts of the Battle Creek Sanitarium, people could sneak away and go get meat. There was no meat allowed at the sanitarium, and even doctors and orderlies and the staff was known to tiptoe off and sneak out to go get a burger. And there was actually a small restaurant that was available as a refuge so that the people that were trying to be healthy and do biological living at the Battle Creek Sanitarium could have a hidden place to go smoke and drink and eat a bunch of meat. So they were cheating, essentially. It can be hard if you're habituated to eating meat to suddenly not have it in your diet and tell yourself you're going to be okay with it. That's why I would never give it up. Right. Uh, I think a lot of people that were in a situation tried to give it up and then realized that was bullshit and their solution was to sneak off and get a burger. Dr. Kellogg wrote extensively about the dangers of masturbation, a habit he called the solitary vice. He heavily advocated for circumcision as a way to stop children from masturbating and believed that sex should only happen in marriage and then only for procreation. Sex outside of marriage and not for procreation sapped the soul and the spirit, and Dr. Kellogg was packed full of both spirit and soul. And probably spunk, because if he wasn't letting it go, I'm sure he was packed full of spunk. Well, so that's interesting. Hear me out, I have a theory. He had eight adopted children and zero biological children. And I think it's safe to assume there was not a lot of procreative sex happening in his marriage. I've actually always secretly believed that his extreme aversion to sex and masturbation was based on erectile dysfunction, which is not something he ever wanted to discuss or treat. While I have no proof one way or the other, his hyper-focus on sexuality and fraught feelings over the topic point, at least to me, to a man that did not have working erections and the frustration that arose out of the circumstances. Oh, okay. So it's a case of, I can't do this thing, so therefore this thing is evil. Mm-hmm. Nobody else should be able to do it. Mm-hmm. I've done research on 
the Kellogg's brothers before. And I had stumbled before on his really strong feelings about how bad sex is and came across the fact that he had adopted children and had none of his own. And years ago, I came up with a theory that it seemed highly likely that he had dick issues and he wanted to make his dick issues something the rest of the world had to deal with. As well. Everyone else's problem. Right. <laughs> I have heard that he was quoted as saying, an erection is a flagpole on your grave. He was a man really against boners, and I believe it's because he himself did not have any boners and he was resentful. Who knows? If he had a properly working trouser snake and he ended up creating his own offspring with his wife as opposed to adopting, he might have never had such a hyper-focus on health, and we would not have cornflakes to enjoy in our modern age. If the parallel universe theory is correct, there is another universe where Dr. Kellogg's dick worked and we don't have cornflakes. <laughs> I, would, I would rather have cornflakes than some old man with a heart on. <laughs> right? Sexual energy and desire can be a very potent force indeed, and it manifests in many different ways. In Dr. Kellogg's case, it manifests in years of ranting about masturbation, promoting circumcision and vegetarianism, and the eventual creation of the delicious cereal we enjoy today. Of course, the cereal that we consume today is nothing like Kellogg's original cereal. It is much too sweet and tasty. He believed that everything should be bland and boring and free of sex. Things that are too sweet or too spicy can get that old libido of flarin, and before you know it, there are boners and wet holes all over the place, and we can't have that. The blander and more boring your food was, the safer you were from those lustful demons in your loins. The next time you go to enjoy some cornflakes, raise your spoon to that sexually repressed doctor in silent tribute, and then go rub one out, because there is nothing wrong with masturbation. Until mm, it makes you go blind. I'm going to let you in on a little something, my friend. Hmm? masturbation doesn't make you go blind oh i know because i wouldn't be able to see you right now if it did <laughs> likewise i think there wouldn't be any like 12 year old boys that weren't walking around with dark glasses and a cane <laughs> my palms are hairy and i walked into a wall i had a teacher one time for a sex ed class that claimed the reason why there was a rooster on the box of the Kellogg's cornflakes was a subtle advertising scheme that they came up with essentially saying this product will keep you from choking the chicken. I haven't ever been able to find any backup evidence to this. Mm, I think that choking the chicken as a euphemism for masturbation became established in popular culture after the rooster was on the box, not before. I could be wrong, but... This came from Mike Godsey from College of Marin. I'm, I'm just throwing his name out there. <laughs> I'm blaming him. If this is misinformation, it's all his fault. The other thing I find interesting is back in the 19th century, it was such a common idea that spicy foods or just anything with any sort of seasoning in it would cause impure thoughts. 
that was actually a very common concept was that any sort of spice and flavor would cause your libido. Also, your teacher at College of Marin was wrong. A rooster is on the Kellogg's cornflake box because a rooster crows in the morning to start their day, and many people start their day with cornflakes. And that's just cornflake propaganda. Oh, so I like his version of it. That there's a rooster on there because it's gonna keep you from rocking the rooster. Hmm. Uh, or rubbing the rooster, I should say. They. Or because a rooster is also called a cock. He debuted on cereal boxes in 1957, and his name is Cornelius. <laughs> Damn it, Mr. Godsey. Yeah. False information. Yes, sorry. Turns out you can't believe everything that people tell you. Yeah, Unless it's, it's us, because we're telling teacher. you the truth. Yeah, we're, we're based on fact. But I have found that facts can change over the years. For instance, people used to believe that masturbation would make you go blind. Or that a bland diet would keep you from masturbating. Both of these things are incorrect. It's interesting to me how many food products we did get from this idea. Because we got the Kellogg's cornflakes. Graham crackers. Graham crackers for the same reason. And the graham crackers that they had back then were nothing like the graham crackers we have now. Because they were completely bland, flavorless Protein pellets. <laughs> they were essentially chewing on cardboard. That'll keep those lustful thoughts down. And from what I've read before, Kellogg got his idea for the cereal from another gentleman, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, that invented the first commercially available dry cereal named Granula. Not Granola, but Granula. Which, if you could imagine, closely resembles Grape Nuts. Have you ever had Grape Nuts? I have never had Grape Nuts in my life. They're pretty much just little hard chunks of wheat. Hmm, okay. I don't think they're terrible, but the grape nuts or the granula he came up with, he used Graham's flour to create these things, and they would put them in sheets and let them dry overnight. The only issue was they were completely inedible in that way because they were so hard that you couldn't eat them. So what they came up with... The ingenious idea was they would soak them overnight in milk to make them palatable and actually edible. That is the argument that I've heard as to why we eat our cereal with milk is that this first commercially available cereal had to be soaked for hours in milk before it was tender enough to eat. I didn't actually come across that in my research when you knew that I was doing a bit on Kellogg, you mentioned the granola, and I went and looked it up, and I couldn't find anything about the granola. I, I suppose I could have looked even harder, but I was trying to... I know that they were trying to create their own cereal, but I, I was having trouble finding the granola grape nuts tie-in. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's out there. I mean, you're known for going very deep, indeed. Mm-hmm. So, so deep. deep. In my sex box. <laughs> pervert thanks for sharing is that all you have for the sex cults and charismatic perverts for this episode that is correct I have Manson and sex boxes and cornflakes well I'm gonna go eat myself some cornflakes while masturbating thinking about Charles Manson in my sex box um 
have fun, I guess? I got quite No, I don't actually have any questions. No, no, carry on. You go with your badass self. I will then. I'll have all the fun. See you in a couple hours. Since that's all you have for us today, I want to thank everybody for once again joining us for another episode of the Dirty Talk Podcast. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Say it like you mean it. Yeah, no, honestly, yes. Woo. Oh, I'm, I'm getting pressured for not being enthusiastic enough. What he doesn't understand is that I have signed a contract because I'm goth and we are not allowed to be super enthusiastic. It goes against the contract rules. You signed this when you were a teenager? Yeah, and I've honored it, man. <laughs> angsty young girl with black hair and pale skin uh fuck yeah you cannot ever be enthusiastic about anything ever correct but i'm very enthusiastic that you all joined us for this podcast woot my nipples are fizzing bing bing fizzing yes that's how enthusiastic i am (laughs) you might want to go to the doctor if you have fizzy nipple i feel shamed by you i'm not shaming you yeah I like fuzzy nipples. Oh, no, wait. Fuzzy nipples. Ew. Ew, fuzzy nipples. I, okay, the, ooh, I didn't mean to shame. That's quite, nipples can be fuzzy. I've known girls. I've called it hobbit nipple before. I've known girls that have had a hairy nipple. You've got some serious hobbit nipples going on, my friend. Well, that's because I'm a man. You're all man. I'm not shaming any woman that has a hobbit nipple. That's fine. I'll still suck those nipples. And I have. I am not ashamed to admit that I have sucked hobbit nipple before. Um, okay. Thank you for sharing. Join us next time where I'm sure we will have many other great, interesting things and important information, very important information to share. And and Hobbit nipples. No, we're not going to share the Hobbit nipples. All right. No Hobbit nipples. All right. Take it back. Precious. Precious. It's precious. Precious. Before we go... I do want to put out my podcast challenge that I put out every time. What's the podcast challenge? The challenge is if you enjoy this podcast and want to support us, go and tell at least one person about it. Just one? That's all we're saying? At least one, but you could always tell more. You could also, if you wanted to, follow it and rate it on whatever platform you choose to listen to your podcasts on because that helps us get listeners too. So if you think what we're doing is fun and valuable, share it with the rest of the world because it's important to get more ears. Correct. That's a great challenge. I approve. Thank you. Also, if you appreciate the podcast, you can follow us on Patreon, Dirty Talk Podcast on Patreon. And for five bucks a month, you also get our weekly after hours podcast which is fun and full of a lot more interesting tidbits so if you want to listen to us on a weekly basis oftentimes coming from strange exotic locales and engaging in death-defying stunts yes death-defying stunts Mm -hmm. and inexplicable adventures because we're rock stars that leave the house all of the time 
I left the house to come over here. Ooh. Is my spare bedroom an interesting and exotic location? It can be, depending on the situation. I'm reminding everybody now that the podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, Stitcher, Spreaker, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, pretty much anywhere you can think to get a podcast. Oh, I think we're also on SoundCloud. I put the, like the last three episodes up on SoundCloud. So not all the episodes are on there because SoundCloud wants to charge me money. But you can get the last three episodes on SoundCloud, sometimes two episodes, depending on how long they are. And we're also on YouTube. We are official YouTubers. Are we one of the cool kids now? Uh, we were always cool kids. Right, right. Of course. Yes. The coolest. We're just that much cooler. Right. Significantly cooler now that we're By also a couple YouTubers. of degrees. Also, thanks to our honorary producers. <gasps> if you want to become an honorary producer, you can join us on Patreon at the $100 level. You get a shout out at the end of every podcast as an honorary producer. Our honorary producers currently are Rolf Hansen and his wives. Wives, plural, because that's how Rolf and his wives roll. Yep. He is a very nice, interesting, poly-German guy. Thank you so much, Rolf and wives. We couldn't do it without you, and we truly appreciate your vote of confidence. It allows us to keep creating shows like this for everyone to enjoy. That's the end of our shameless self-promotion. Thanks again for taking the time out of your busy, busy day to join us on our strange adventure. Indeed. I guess we'll talk to you next month. Till next time.